I'm all for animal rights. And a soul and a mind. On that farm, he had a sheep. The modern supermarket has, on average, 47,000 products. The industry doesn't want you to know the truth. But here, at least we pretend to care. We've never had food companies this powerful. They're all crazy. I'm just the best bird lawyer in the world. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Oh. Hi, everybody. I'm Jane Osick. I am a 3L. And I thought, why not do this thing, go to law school that I've been thinking about since I was you know, a teenager, a second chapter in life. So I take the T and I take the red line. The, the red green line. line. And so I'm not affected by this horrible orange line thing. But I kind of like to stick up for the T. I know people badmouth it and all, but I don't know. It gets me where I need to go. And this is On Remand. Today we're talking about animal law, ethical farming, and related advocacy. So let's get into it. I mean, I was always interested in animals when I was a kid, like so many kids, I want to be a vet. And then I happened to see a guy whose name is Gene Bauer. He's the founder of Farm Sanctuary, which is sort of the gold standard of farm animal rescue. I was in California at the time, and they had a branch that was about half an hour from my house. So I went, and it was really that visit that just clicked for me, that the things that we eat and the things that we wear and the things that we do for fun implicate animals in ways that I had never considered. And when I learned about it, that was unacceptable to me. And so the first thing that you change is what you eat. There is a difference between vegans. Vegan? Vegan and vegetarian. Vegan includes absolutely no animal product. They wouldn't be including eggs or dairy in their diet. So vegan is a lot stricter than a vegetarian. I never really thought about vegetarian and veganism. When I was a kid, it just wasn't as big as it is now. And it's not really big now, but it's bigger now than it was a really appealing approach to talking about animals as sentient beings that we should be treating differently. If you look at most other animals, like cows, pigs, and sometimes chickens, there's usually something somewhere that says, hey, let's try to cause them as little suffering as possible while we use and kill them. Are you technically now qualified to be an animal advocate? I know that they're not actually experts, and you argue that we should make them experts. That way we can cross them in court. You could be put on that list. I suppose so. You know that the law doesn't require much. It just says you have to have some familiarity with animal issues. It doesn't say what that is. It doesn't seem to be particularly demanding. I just thought going in that I would support this statute that, for, just to clarify for the listeners, allows, in cases of criminal animal abuse, allows a court or a party to request a person called a courtroom animal advocate who serves essentially as somebody who provides the court information about animal welfare, maybe in general, or the specific needs of an animal victim. So for instance, you might have a dog that was a victim of abuse, but the dog turns out to be pregnant and gives birth during the pendency of the, of the trial. What are you going to do with those puppies? How are we going to account for those? So the court's not going to be thinking about that. Maybe the prosecutor's not thinking about it. But this individual who's coming in with a different mindset is going to provide information. That sounded like such a great idea. As I got reading more about it and how the law changed what it initially envisioned into what it actually was, it occurred to me that it didn't seem quite fair and that even if you are advocating for animals, that doesn't mean you go so far to the edge that you're dispensing with protections for defendants. And that surprised me a little bit that I ended up in my paper arguing a little, a little bit against this, that it has to be fixed in some way for it to be not only good for animals, but also good for people. People will often say that animals are just property, and that's true, but they're a special kind of property, and we've made rules for that. So if you have a car, and you don't like your car, for whatever reason, you just want to take it to a junkyard and cube it, go ahead, what do I care? But you can't do that with a dog. 
we could make up a specialized standing rule for animals. And we don't because there's a lot of pushback from not only groups you would expect, but also vets, because that's going to then theoretically change the relationship between an owner of a domesticated animal and the animal. More extreme version is, well, what if somebody found out that you were planning to, what do you do with Doberman's ears? You know, they, they oh, normally you hang, them. but you, yeah. yeah. And that what if somebody who was really against that found out that you were going to do that and they bring a suit on behalf of the animal and now vets are involved and it, it implicates other people. But again, I think we could craft law that would not permit those kinds of silly, on surface, silly cases to be brought. Now, in practice, this is more lip service than actual protection. I mean, even if you fully followed those regulations, you could do things to these animals that would be completely illegal if done to dogs and cats. I also saw, too, that only dogs and cats, right? Yeah, that was an exception to the initial drafting of the statute, which was any animal. But they reduced that because specifically the dairy industry said we cannot be including cows in this. There's a lot of use and abuse of cows in the dairy industry. And they didn't want that in Connecticut to be part of this. Maybe somebody might start to bring a suit on behalf of a cow. It's a bad sign whenever you say you can't include this animal in this prevention for abuse because we abuse this animal so systemically. That's a huge blaring problem. Yeah, and it's just the idea of raising in people's minds, what does it mean to abuse an animal? It seems to be this connectedness between domestic situations and domesticated animals. The fundamental position of a lot of animal rights advocates that when you're thinking about animals for what they can do and how you can make money off of them, even if you say you like animals, you're just not thinking about them in the same way that allows you to think about their needs. Animal rights activists are calling on the Bronx Zoo to send its two remaining elephants, Happy and Patty, to an elephant sanctuary and interact with other elephants, as herd animals do. Just recently, this group called Non-Human Rights Project brought a case in New York, and it went up to the highest court in New York, to get this elephant, this single elephant that lives at the Bronx Zoo, released to a sanctuary. And the, the argument is animals are herds, herd animals, they need to be together. Here's this lone elephant, it's been there 40 years, oh my God. Um, and the Bronx Zoo will not let it go. The Non-Human Rights Project has said, we'll drop it, it just let it go. There's just a great sanctuary in Tennessee that has elephants that just you know are allowed to roam. And part of it, the people who resist that is, well, we're taking care of the elephant's needs. And yeah, the zoo does take good care of it, but it's not considering, well, what are the animal's psychological needs? And they can do that because they don't think of it that way. They just think of it as something that can generate money. Sounds like money to me. My paper, I didn't go so far as to say that it should revert back to any animal should be covered because it's just, I think that's just not realistic. But what I think Massachusetts in adopting this could do is look to its animal cruelty statutes and the statutes that Massachusetts says, here are the animals you can own. And if the Commonwealth says you can own it, then that animal should be covered. That we kill in the largest numbers by very, very far, and yet both culturally and legally, we protect them the least from cruelty and suffering. Did you volunteer whenever you were going to the sanctuary? I did, actually. I went every week and cleaned out the stalls. And I was teaching high school at the time. I was telling my students about it, and they formed a little club that they called Farm Friends. And I took them as groups up to visit and just try to spread the word that way through experience instead of just telling them. 
hey, you should start eating this way, which is actually really hard for high school kids because they oftentimes don't control what they eat. It was a way to get them to experience animals that they otherwise would never experience and think about. So like, for instance, sheep, this is really, I think the best example is if you think about shearing a sheep so that you can use the wool, and the question is, what does the sheep care? It doesn't care. It doesn't, if you have a good shearer, it doesn't hurt the sheep to be shorn. And now we've actually genetically altered them so that they produce a lot of wool and you have to shear them, otherwise they will be If People will say, well, it doesn't matter then, right? You can just wear wool. And that's true, the individual sheep doesn't care. But to make it profitable, you have to have thousands and thousands of sheep. And you can't then treat each sheep carefully and do it properly so that the sheep is protected from damage. You treat it on an industrialized scale. And it's that not just the actual damage to sheep, but the thinking that goes into that of, well, I'll figure into my business model that 100 sheep are going to die on this live transport. And it's that kind of thinking that experiencing animals face to face starts to change your mind about things when you showed them. This is how cruel the industry can be. That really affected them because they're thinking, as many young people today are, is what's my future going to be like after the generation before seems to have ruined the earth in a lot of ways? What's left for me? And what are the things that are really damaging the environment? And one of those things is factory farming of animals, which is on a huge scale. Everything we've done in modern agriculture is to grow it faster, fatter, bigger, cheaper. If you could grow a chicken in 49 days, why would you want one you gotta grow in three months? Uh, I, I think most people would say a dairy farm doesn't abuse an animal, but why would you say that? It's because you don't know. Particularly the dairy industry, you know, in order to give milk, cows must give birth, and you're not going to just wait until two cows manage to get it together and then the cow is impregnated, it's all artificial. Mm -hmm. And then once the baby is born, they have to take the baby away because if the baby is there, the baby gets the milk and then you can't use it. It's quite big in animal welfare, PETA kind of thinking. Every single PETA ad is just like, look at this cute little bear, don't eat bears or whatever. <laughs> There's a thing called the gestation crate, which is used for pigs. And it, it used to be that you could put a pig in this gestation crate that didn't allow it to turn around. So a full grown farm pig is six, 700 pounds. And the idea was you put it in there, it would give birth, and then you could just have the babies suckle on the mother without the mother being able to move anywhere. So, I mean, just imagine how narrow this crate is. And that has pretty much been phased out now that that has been seen as excessively cruel. But what they've done to fix it is just make it a little bit bigger. And we all know that according to bird law, it's three strikes. Battery cages that were used for chickens. I've gotten bigger. So now there's like the whole, oh, the free range. I'm paying more for these eggs because they're supposedly from free range chickens. But when you look into it, what all that means is that the space you are keeping the chickens in just has to be bigger. And so what they will do is just build a giant, you know, like a barn and then throw all the chickens in. And as long as there's a door somewhere that kind of leads out to a certain little outside space, that counts. Ready, boys and girls, because here's where it gets good. And you're paying more money for really no improvement in cruelty measures. And I think that's that's so bad because people don't want animals to suffer. They get tricked by animal producers who play on that. But then things that haven't been fixed, like we have- In the US, there's the Humane Methods of Livestock Slaughter Act. The Humane Slaughter Act, which has been in place for, I think it's from the 50s, that governs how you can kill an animal. And generally it is, you have to make it unconscious before you can kill it. But that does not cover chickens. 
So essentially you can kill a chicken any way you want. A bird. There's something about birds that kind of puts people off. Even I'm not that crazy about birds. Bye, bye, birdie. But there's a sense that they are not as sentient as four-legged creatures, as things that are more like a dog or a cat that people might look at and, oh, it's just a bird. And so there's there very few protections for birds. Once you're dealing with factory farming, the, everything goes out the window. You can, I mean, and there are laws that govern how you kill cows, but, you know, really, who's watching? If you can get away with not finding problems, I think that's what everybody wants. Animals are sentient beings who don't deserve to suffer. And I do believe that there is a way to like ethically consume animals. But obviously like the way that the United States is doing it is not the ethical way. So to me, any steps in like improving animal welfare, even if we are still consuming them, is a good thing. It's not so much the raising of an animal and then killing it to eat that bothers people. It's the stage on which it happens and the scale of it that becomes so abusive that animals don't count, their individual suffering doesn't count because the scale is so huge. So perhaps if we return to something like a family farm structure where you have people raising animals and knowing them individually and that their death is gonna count, it's gonna matter and people are gonna be, they're gonna do it, but there's gonna be some individual recognition that the animal's gonna die so that I can go on and do whatever, but that animal is an individual. That is something that could change people's minds. I don't see that happening. It's not realistic to feed a population on small family farms, and there's an awful lot of money in factory farming. The average consumer does not feel very powerful. When we run an item past the supermarket scanner, we're voting for local or not, organic or not. An industry's irresponsible behavior can be changed. And I mean, that's something for your listeners to think about too, is that to start changing your diet, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing. Some people like me, it wasn't hard at all because I don't know how to cook, I don't know how to care really that much about food so I wasn't really having to give up very much in order to become vegan I just had to stop drinking regular milk which I didn't drink that much anyway and then I drink rice milk or oat milk and then butter so you just use the butter substitute which is fine oh what is and, a butter substitute um, so there's a thing called earth balance which is really good okay um but so so you know there are some maybe limits as to what people can adopt as a substitute and, you know that's a really good point too is that just because something is no longer an animal product doesn't mean that it's the holy grail and it's perfect food there are going to be other things that you might want to consider you don't have to say, okay, it's Monday, I'm never gonna eat another animal product ever again. If you can, you go ahead, but a lot of people can't really do that for a lot of reasons. So if you have to get rid of a single kind of meat, get rid of pork. People eat a lot more beef than pork. The kind of abuse that goes on for pigs is somehow worse. Pigs are really smart. There's studies and really try to estimate how smart animals are, and pigs are estimated to be about as smart as a three-year-old kid. And to give you just an idea, I love this study that I read, it was in a white paper a couple years ago. They were giving a pig this little machine with a lever, and when he would press the lever, he would get a treat. And so the pig learns it in like five seconds, because they're very smart, and so they do it a couple times, and then they change the shape of the lever so that when the pig would put its hoof on it, his hoof would slip off, and he couldn't press the lever to get the treat. And in a minute, this pig, and they repeated it a couple times, said to itself, apparently, oh, well, this isn't working. Let me use my snout and just use the snout to press the lever and got the treat. And when you think about what kind of mental process that is 
to be able to problem solve that way and come up with another way to get the thing you want. Pinks are super duper smart. So, you know, maybe cut out pork. If you want to eat other stuff, okay, but cut that out. Or there are other ways to do it without thinking, I can change my eating is to just go completely into veganism. That's not a good way for long-term success, like with any change in your diet. I think if more people purchase the alternative products too, they would become cheaper as well, which is part of the problem is you go to the grocery store and if you've got half a shelf. And they are more expensive, yeah. But it's definitely grown in the last. Yeah, absolutely. Which is a good thing. It's a good thing to see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think also people have to accept that it's not going to be the same, particularly texture-wise. They haven't really been able to figure out how to make things feel the same way you're eating it, which is surprisingly important to people. Texture and the experience of chewing it and eating it is really important. People resist plant-based stuff. It's definitely not the same, but the taste can be almost exactly the same. So you just have to weigh that. Like, what am I willing to be a part of in order to get this benefit that I want? Um, I used to work with a guy who said, you know, don't tell me, I don't wanna know. I just wanna keep doing what I'm doing. Then I had another colleague who said, yeah, I've watched Slaughterhouse videos. I know it. It's not enough for me. It doesn't bother me enough to change my way. And even though like that person kind of scared me a little bit because I don't know, you can watch Slaughterhouse videos and say, yeah, it doesn't really bother me that much. But I kind of respected him better because at least he was making essentially an informed decision. He knew what he was a party to. You know, how many people want to know what goes on in the Slaughterhouse? Oh, no one. They, nobody, right? They don't want to. Because if I know, then I have to think about that every time I have a hamburger. Well, do you have any tips for anybody on... I would say go visit a farm animal sanctuary and meet the animals. It comes down to, this is something that Jean Bauer, the founder of Farm Sanctuary, says a lot, which is it's true that we have dominion over animals, absolutely. But whether we should be doing those things is really the question. And the way to get to that, should we be doing it, is to reckon with the sentience of the animals that we are dominating. The main thing in animal law is this idea of sentience and standing. Do animals have a right to certain treatments just because they exist independent of people? What's kind of interesting about my paper is suggesting that Massachusetts, which has a long history of protecting animals, is positioned to do something to correct those two shortcomings. Um, one is to extend the animals that are covered, and two is to reconsider this limitation on the Corbin Animal Advocate to get it away from its natural seeming connection to the prosecution. So yeah, I was excited about that, that, that I actually had a suggestion to make that is something Massachusetts could do. It's good that you have done this. It's something that I would have never known about or yeah. have even learned about. The change to becoming a vegan was just an awareness of factory farming realities. And then that led me to thinking about legal protections for animals. It makes sense. If, you, if you're going to do it on one front, you might as well. Yeah. How long has it been since you went vegan? Probably about seven years now, six or seven years. This is On Remind, an academic podcast produced by the New England Law Review, our flagship publication of New England Law Boston. Featuring professionals, alumni, and forthcoming authors, On Remind provides student-curated content. All songs and sound bites featured in this episode are permitted for educational purposes in accordance with fair use. For more information about the New England Law Review, you can visit our online journal, The Forum, at www.newenglrev.com. That's newenglrev.com. Thank you to Law Review member Jane Osick for talking to us today about her upcoming publication, 
Animal Victims and the Law, How Massachusetts Can Revise the Courtroom Animal Advocate Program to Better Protect Victims and Defendants. See you next time.